best way we can prepare our children for the future is to have them be be able to think and to be able to flexibly problem solve and and things basic reading writing and arithmetic skills like you know showing your work and um, handwriting are perhaps going to become much less important so we have to challenge our assumptions Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. My name is Debbie Reber, and I'm the host of this show. And today I'm bringing back to the podcast, Dr. Devin McEachran, a New York-based psychologist who specializes in assessment and educational planning for gifted and twice exceptional learners. The last time Devin was on the show, we talked about the assessment process for two-week kids, But today, we want to move into the next natural step of this conversation, and actually, the next step for a parent whose child has been identified as having any sort of neurodifference, from dyslexia and ADHD to a processing speed or a sensory issue. And that step involves really looking at this question, what now? As in, what should I do with this information? How should I feel about it? Where do I begin? And how can I figure out a way to navigate this unknown path in a way that's in alignment with my values and will best support my child? So that's what Devin and I are going to get into today. This is a very practical episode intended to give you a framework for processing what can be overwhelming or unexpected information, and then moving forward with confidence. And a little background about my guest Dr. Devin McEachran provides comprehensive neuropsych and psychoeducational assessments focused on discovering the student's unique profile of cognitive strengths and weaknesses and identifying how individual differences impact learning, achievement as compared to ability, social, emotional, and behavioral functioning, and interests and affinities. As a specialist in TUI and gifted learners, dyslexia, ADHD, Asperger's, and academic motivation, Devin is an expert diagnostician who provides an actionable game plan to families, enabling students to achieve their highest potential. And if Dr. Devin's name is familiar to you, it might be because her short video for now this about what you need to know about neurodiversity went viral last year with more than 28 million views. And now, I'm going to get on with the show. Hey, Devin, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Debbie. It's really an honor to be invited back. Yeah, our conversation, I'm realizing, was a couple of years ago now where we talked about the diagnostic process. That was a very popular episode. Listeners, if you haven't checked it out yet, you should go back and listen to that after you listen to this conversation And you've had kind of a busy couple of years since then. Before we get into the meat of our conversation today, can you just take a a minute to introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Sure. My name is Devin McEachran, and I'm a psychologist in private practice in New York City and Manhattan. And I specialize in um, gifted learners and twice exceptional learners, but I'm happy to work with absolutely anybody. I I take a very positive um, psychology approach to my work and emphasize the child's strengths and interests, as well as areas for development. So it's it's perhaps a little bit different approach than we'll take, and it's very rewarding. Yeah, and just I have to just say this as a disclaimer, Devin was the person that we took Asher to last summer. 
uh, here in New York City for a formal assessment process. And it was just such a positive experience. So I'm just going to throw that out there. I've been sharing this in different Facebook groups where people are looking for resources. So just full disclosure that we have that kind of relationship. So I know um, how good Devin is at what she does. Um, but I also just have to mention that you were in a video and now this video that came out I don't know, maybe a year ago that really went viral. Can you, I'm sure that listeners know you from that. Can you just take a moment to speak to that and kind of the unexpected response it received? It sure was unexpected. And it was last July. My daughter, who is twice exceptional, is a journalist at Now This. And they were having a quiet month and she noticed it was Mental Health Awareness Month. So she asked me if I would prepare uh, an opinion piece on any topic I was interested in having to do with mental health. Um, so I decided to do it on neurodiversity, and I'll explain what I mean by that briefly, but it's very um, in alignment with your approach of seeing people as differently wired. Um, but but I, so I did this talk and, and went down to her studio and got it done, and it came out, and it's now up to 29.8 million views. Oh, my word. <laughs> crazy. It just really took off, and they didn't expect that at now this either, particularly for an opinion piece on a topic that was sort of scientific. Um, but I, I think what it suggests, and from what I've heard from people, I've gotten an outpouring of responses from around the world, and what most people have said they found so exciting about this and the whole topic of neurodiversity, it's a, it's a positive way of looking at how people are different and finding ways for them to be themselves and be the best they can be, rather than marginalizing them and looking at people as a medical diagnosis as, as somehow broken. And I think that that um, way of thinking really resonated with, with a lot of people. Um, and I think good things are coming. There, there's been a huge number in the past year, which may be totally unrelated, probably is, but of companies who are, are making a real effort, who are have hiring neurodiversity consultants to help you know, enlarge their, their um, acceptance of people who are neurodiverse in the workforce and so on. So it's 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 a, the momentum's building for that, and and it's and you're no small part of that, Debbie. Oh, well, thank you. But wow, I just have to say that's incredible. Uh, almost thirty million views, and that you know I always think of this as a revolution. You know, and the work that I'm doing is a little piece of that, but just trying to change this paradigm and help people see neurodivergent people in a different light, and um. It's so exciting to think that that many people have viewed this and are considering the things that you talk about and that message of inclusion and and accepting people for who they are is really exciting. Yeah, I know it is. It's on, and I'm, I'm very proud of my daughter, too. It's a fun mother-daughter project. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, so our first episode we did together was about the diagnostic process. Today, we wanted to talk about, okay, we get this diagnosis we get this, you know, sometimes very thick packet of, of a report with all kinds of details and information about various tests and recommendations, etc., which can be really overwhelming. So we wanted to talk about what's next, what is a parent to do. So let's just start there. Say someone has come in to see you or worked with someone else, and they've gotten this detailed report saying, okay, your child, you know, has been identified as X, Y, and Z. What is a parent to do first? Like, where should they even begin wrapping their head around what they're learning and discovering? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. I think parents often don't know what to do next, so this is this is good. Um, I would start with questioning the report and questioning the evaluator um, about the information. In, in your own mind, does, do you feel it fits? Does it describe your child appropriately and adequately? And ask them questions. You know, I know there's a lot of dense language in there that's, that you have to use dictionaries to look up words, but, but it should all be able to be explained in plain English in a way that anybody can understand. And I think it's oh, too often people are, are afraid to hold the evaluator to task to, to really explain it to them adequately and, and, and question the actual things. I, 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 so often I see a family um, who tells me that their child was found to have slow processing speed and the processing speed is at the eighth percentile or something. And then when I look at the report, I see that the evaluator did one two-minute test of processing speed. Um, that within the WISC um, full-scale IQ, there's literally only one processing speed test. So unless they did more than one test, you really shouldn't be relying on one data point to make a lot of decisions. So I guess my first piece of advice is question. See if it sounds right and you're confident in, in what was recommended before you start taking the appropriate steps. I think that's such a good point. And I think that it is probably something most parents don't do because we're not, I know that you in raising your children decided to go back and get a PhD so you could, you know, really understand who they are um, and, and work with this population. But most of us don't do that. Most of us don't have the background, the experience or information to even trust maybe our own instincts if something doesn't resonate. And we really are giving a lot of power to the people who make these decisions about who our kids are. So I think that is a really good piece of advice. And I guess so if someone sees something that really doesn't land or resonate, I'm just curious, like, do you recommend getting a second opinion? Do you recommend having a deeper discussion and having a better understanding? What would they do if something really doesn't click? Uh, no, I think, and this has happened to me as a, as a parent before I went back for my PhD. So I'm, I've been in, in that that position. Um, sometimes a second opinion is a good idea. I think starting with going back to the evaluator and saying, "Hey, you know, this doesn't sound right to me. Could you explain it to me better so that I understand how did you get there? You know, what what's this based on?" Um, it's not uncommon at all to get second opinions either. And I, I do that a lot for families. Um, sometimes it's not even a second opinion. It's just reading the report that's there and saying, you know, here's what it really says. <laughs> you know, if you don't understand what it says, here's what it, I think it says. And here's what you should take from it. So that's not a bad idea to get a second opinion. Or sometimes a few additional tests might need to be administered. If, but if you feel maybe in even going through that process of questioning the evaluator, you, you come to a feeling of trust or not. And, and if you feel that trust, I think you then can rely more on their expertise and professional judgment and, and not feel like you have to question everything. If you, if you feel like, gee, this person really does know what they're talking about and it sounds right. Okay. Also, I guess it's important to consider, and I think this goes more into what we discussed in the first episode. But in case people haven't listened to that yet, let's just briefly touch upon the goal in getting an assessment. Is it important to consider that? Because I think a lot of times, it's really about getting services versus having a really good understanding of what's actually happening with the child. So is that an important distinction to make? Well, I would hope that parents would want the big picture, which is understanding their child and getting services, both. 
But sometimes if you've gotten an, you know, a quick evaluation at school, it, it might not really help you understand your whole child. It might be very surface oriented, but still question that and, and make sure that you think that the, the, the problems that have been identified as requiring services are the ones that require service. I remember when we did our, uh, you know, an assessment when, when Asher was eight, it very much was about, she said, this is very subjective, but I, you know, I did, I made these decisions in part to make sure that he would get the kind of accommodations he needed. Yes. And and we do see that. I, I, <laughs> I have families who come into me and say, you know, my child got this diagnosis, you know, four years ago because we wanted extra time on the SAT, but he doesn't really have problems with that. Hmm. You know? So you, you see that too, which of course after the recent news will be hopefully less common, but yeah, no, I, I think, you do what you have to do. So it's if, if you need to get um, a diagnosis so that your child can get services, then then you should try to make sure you get a diagnosis, but make sure that it matches the services you want your child to get. Right. Okay. So we've gotten the report, we've read it, and we've questioned it. Now we're kind of, you know, I'm just imagining this blank canvas, right? So now we have this information we may know more about our child's brain than we ever imagined wanting to know in our lifetime. And we don't know what to do now. So can you kind of walk us through that process that a parent is likely to go through as they're digesting this information? Yes. And I'd like to sort of before launching into what to do next, I'd like to just stop for a moment and talk about considering for the parent to consider their emotional state, particularly if it's a first diagnosis for a child and you thought that everything might be totally fine and suddenly you're told that there's something going on that you that you didn't expect and that's not, not positive necessarily. Um, there, there are stages that one goes through in, in digesting and accepting this information. There, there's a really good book um, by a woman named Dr. Rita Eichenstein called Not What I Expected which describes that process. And basically, I won't go into great detail, but the first step, and it's like the stages of grief, the first step is often denial. And I've certainly felt that myself as a parent. It's, it's basically a defense mechanism of rejecting and retreating from the diagnosis. No, that's not possible. My child couldn't have that. You know, or the, often one parent will say, well, you know, I was just like him as a kid and I turned out fine. You know, there's nothing really all that wrong. And the de- denial stage can, can take a little while to work through um, if, if parents go there. Not all parents land on all stages. The next stage is often anger, um, sometimes directed, directing your pain toward school for not catching things earlier, or sometimes towards yourself, you know, thinking that you did something wrong as a parent. I've been there too. I mean, personally, um, I, I blamed the school and was very angry at the school and felt I had to go into these IEP meetings with <laughs> the equivalent of you know, a bunch of Valium in my system so that I could not be as angry as I felt because it's hard. It's really hard. And you want to be a, you know, a mama bear and protect your child. And that, that can be a stage that we get stuck in. I've seen parents who are stuck in a position of suing their school district year after year after year for six, seven, eight years without a lot of progress. And and I would advise them to try to move past the anger stage into a next stage. And the next stage is where you get into doing the actual planning. And that's, it's called the bargaining stage, but it's where you're seeking solutions. 
And so I think once you can kind of get past the, the cloudiness of, of the denial and the anger, going for solutions is, is where you're really starting to be helpful and, and thoughtful about deciding what next. We'll be right back after this quick break. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body, and so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. So in our house these days, Darren and I have been working together to uplevel our nutrition and healthy lifestyle habits. Maybe it's our age, our changing bodies, my shifting hormones, whatever the reason, I'm here for it. And that's why I'm loving Green Chef, a meal company that makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Green Chef offers gut-friendly recipes each week and is committed to providing a holistic approach to nutrition by offering meals that contribute to the overall well-being of your entire body. Darren and I are particularly big fans of their nutrient-dense, science-backed gut and brain health recipes, developed in partnership with registered dietitians that improve digestion, reduce bloat, and also boost energy and immunity. This week's favorites, turkey, black bean, and sweet potato chili, and the Baja chicken bowls with mango salsa. I mean, don't those sound delicious? But if that's not your thing, you can choose from a variety of customized meals to suit your lifestyles with preferences like keto, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, gluten-free, and protein-packed. Whatever you choose, you'll get farm-fresh ingredients, organic whole fruits and veggies, and premium proteins, along with chef-crafted, nutritionist-approved recipes delivered straight to your door. Go to greenchef.com slash 60tilt and use code 60tilt to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's 60% off plus 20% off your next two months when you use the code 60TILT at greenchef.com slash 60TILT. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And and I will just say that you've introduced me to Dr. Uh, Eichenstein and we're scheduling her to come on the podcast. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. I have her book and, and read it many years ago. Um, and I think that it's just so important to consider the emotional process because this is hard stuff. You know, there can be mourning involved and and I talk about that in my book and and I don't use that word lightly, but I think there's a there is a lot of, you know, loss and and hopefully acceptance um on the other end of that, but that we have to process as we digest this. And I it's interesting too 
how many parents I'm hearing from who are also discovering through their child's diagnosis that they too are differently wired, maybe have the same symptoms, the same diagnosis, or they just discover it as an adult. And it's very complicated stuff to work through. Mm -hmm. And and can be harder to work through with your own neurodiversity involved. If if it's ADHD, it it might be harder to organize your child's uh, plan. And one of the recommendations for for parenting a child with ADHD is to try to have more structure in their life and more uh, sticking to schedules. Well, how easy is that for a parent who has ADHD? Mm -hmm. You know, it's um it's tough all around. Um, yeah, absolutely. Nice to ourselves as parents. It's so important. It's so true. We're so tough on ourselves. And I do hear from parents about guilt that they didn't recognize things earlier. And they regret wasted time, you know, and getting a later diagnosis or just years that their child may not have been thriving. But that is not really helpful. And it's important to just kind of move on to those those solutions. So let's talk more about that. You know, you said it was in the bargaining stage. How do we even begin? Again, we have all this information, and it can be hard to even know where should we focus our energies? How do you support parents in thinking about or figuring out where are the things that we should focus on? And, and how do we even figure that out? Mm-hmm. Right. Um- a, a good neuropsych or psych ed report will have a pretty detailed list of recommendations. And I advise parents to look at that as a menu. You're not going to eat everything on the menu in your first meal. You're going to uh, choose those things that are most important now. And I would recommend choosing one from column A and one from column B, <laughs> or, or two from column A and two from column B. Column A being developing skills that are weaker, addressing the problems, and column B being addressing the child's interests and strengths. And that too often is neglected in the whole process. Too often it's all about working on the weaknesses. But, but let's just stay with the weaknesses side for a moment or the, the, the growth opportunities side, which is how I like to describe it to the children I work with, because that's what it really is. These are things that you can grow in. There's an opportunity there. There too, I would, I would suggest that families choose those to focus on those things that are most important to them and their child now, not necessarily the thing that their mom thinks is most worrisome or that that is making the child not fit into that particular school, but the things that are really important to the family that the child develop. And when I say the family, I'm including the child in the process, even little kids, um, even an eight, nine-year-old, um, their voice can be helpful in deciding what's a priority. I mean, maybe you want to do handwriting without tears to improve graphomotor coordination, or maybe you just want to discuss it all and say, hey, let's get keyboarding going. You know, maybe it's not that important to have handwriting that's that readable. So, so together you can make better decisions on what the priorities are, given what you think your child might want to do later. I mean, it can be a little hard to make that judgment, I had one family where there was a child who was absolutely good at every single thing from creativity to sports, to the arts, to English, to reading, except for math. And and with a child who's in high school, uh, I think it would not be inappropriate to decide that math is not going to be emphasized anymore if if the student isn't that interested in it and isn't planning a future that that is going to necessarily require that they be super strong at math. 
Um, so even something as, as basic as math, I think, can be up for grabs. It's something you decide whether to emphasize or not. I really like that. And it feels really freeing to hear that, you know, to even consider, you know what, this actually isn't a priority. And realistically, this math is not going to be part of your future and, and how you spend your time. So why don't we just take that off the table? I'm wondering, is there some reprogramming almost of the parents that has to happen here? Because I think we get caught up and even just with the handwriting, right? There's this idea that your child has to know how to write. That's just a, a life skill. Um, and I think it can be hard for a lot of parents to take that step back and realize, you know what? In the big picture, this doesn't actually necessarily matter for who my child is. Yeah, that that's so true. And I, I, we get these ideas of what's what what is required in, a, in an education, but but these are very antiquated notions in many respects. I mean, even reading books with our eyes. You know how how far away are we from a, a world where we can absorb information in different ways? Um, I, I think we're, we're our, the best way we can prepare our children for the future is to have them be be able to think and to be able to flexibly problem solve and and things basic reading writing and arithmetic skills like you know showing your work and um, handwriting are perhaps going to become much less important. So we have to challenge our assumptions of what we what we think it's about. Yeah, constantly uh, showing showing your work is a just painful for so many of our kids who are just they're just figuring it out in their head in a whole different way, and it seems very tedious for them to have to demonstrate how they did that. And who who made those rules? Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Well, so I know that a big focus for you and the work that you do is about helping a child understand their strengths and, and nurturing those strengths. Can you talk more about that? Because that's, I'm imagining where we want to put most of our energy. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's, that's the critical um, piece that needs to happen after an assessment. Um, because a child spends a couple of days with a psychologist and you know, doesn't really sometimes get feedback that explains to them in an empowering way what their brain is like and what the next steps are. So, so I recommend that the psychologist and the child sit down and spend as long as the child is interested in understanding the child's brain, but emphasizing the, all the strengths and interests and things that the child is good at. And I often call them superpowers um, to relate to the kids. And, and then having a few areas or one or two that, that are development areas that can be grown and having a growth mentality about that, explaining that the brain is kind of like a muscle in your body. And, and you know, you, if you want to build your muscles, you, you need to exercise. Same is true of your brain. So there are exercises that can be done to brain to build your your um, strengths in, in areas that may may benefit from that whether it's a, you know, a behavioral sort of a thing or um, dyslexia or ADD, whatever it is, there's always um, a, a strategy, a program, a therapy, an intervention um, that can be helpful. So you bring something up in terms of sitting down with the child having this empowering discussion. And, you know, when, when Asher went through this process with you, that's the first time that someone who was assessing him sat him down and talked with him and, and really explained how his brain works and where his areas of strength are and some of his, his areas of lagging skills. And I, and I also know that a lot of parents 
don't know whether or not they should disclose. Some of them don't want to tell their child anything is going on. They want to try to covertly, you know, slip in supports. Can you talk a little bit more about looping the child in? Is that something we should do from any age? What do you recommend? Well, in terms of, I always feel the child should be looped in, in terms of a discussion with the psychologist, with the parents, because almost all of them, almost any child who is being assessed thinks there's something wrong with them. Not necessarily because they're being assessed, but because they're having more difficulties than their peers at something, and and they know it. Um, They're typically not oblivious. Sometimes they are, but, but rarely. I think most often they know there's something going on, and they may think they're stupid, or they may think they're bad. And, and you don't want your child thinking either of those things. So I think it's really, really important that, that answers be given to them that, that include you're not stupid and you're not bad so that they can let that go. And it, it's a very therapeutic thing. I've, I've had little, I didn't know when I started out doing this how impactful it was. And there, I had a case where it was about maybe 12 years ago. A child must have been six. And I'm thinking, this is falling on deaf ears. This kid's six years old. How much are they going to take out of this? And then the, the parents circled back to me recently as, as the young man was getting his engineering degree and said, he always talks about how you told him X and, and how that made him feel better about himself and gave him the courage to pursue his dreams. And so that's really, really empowering. So even if it's a little kid that you don't think would get it, I think they should. I think some parents wonder whether they should use the disability terminology whether they should say you have ADHD or um, Asperger's or dyslexia. And I, I think on that one, it's appropriate to defer to some extent, you know, to the parents' values because they, they may be really nervous about um, uh, there being some um, negative connotations that might follow the child into school. Sometimes, um, you know, the report is um, redacted for the purposes of the school if the school's not really um, enlightened about disabilities and how kids are wired. Um, they, they may somehow think there's something bad about a kid who, just because they have ADHD. Maybe the, the terminology would be adjusted so that the, the teachers don't develop a, a negative opinion of the child based on that. So, so some of these concerns can be you know, valid ones. Um, but generally speaking, I think the world has changed enough that there isn't as much negative stigma and that we make there be less negative stigma by being open about these things. And so usually... Um, Parents do decide to um, to use the terminology, but as long as it's in the, in the right terms, so that it doesn't become something that's scary. We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, 
six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. So I want to switch topics just for a moment. And just talk about, you, you mentioned that in the in the report, there would be a list of recommendations. There are also so many different therapies and books and resources. And there isn't kind of one clearinghouse that I found, you know, for all of these um, to get really objective feedback on, on exactly what to do. There's an interesting book uh, called Child Decoded, which I thought provided an overview of lots of different approaches and, and, and what might work for different kids. But, and, and even in Facebook groups, right? I see this every day in the groups that I'm in. Who's tried this? Who's tried this? And sometimes they're controversial and, you know, this is pseudoscience and this is great. It totally changed my child's life. Do you have any best practices for how parents can consider the resources available, the different types of support, and determine what is valid, determine what could actually be beneficial for their child. Yeah. And, and this is not, this is work uh, for parents. And I, I respect and admire parents who, who will dig in and, and really try to figure out what works and what doesn't. And the best practice I would recommend is to focus on what are known as best practice interventions. And these are ones that have been supported by well, the gold standard would be, you know, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled studies, real research. Um, and if, if there's evidence that shows that something works, you can be more confident that it will work. However, a testimonial is not proof. It's not evidence. And, and the fact that somebody's cousin's daughter, you know, they think benefited from, from a particular therapy is is sometimes um, really the wrong direction to head because is the, I think the reason we tend to go that direction is that a phenomenon called belief perseverance, where you, you tend to pay the most attention to the facts that support beliefs 
while ignoring those that contradict our beliefs. So if we want to believe something, like say I'm a, a, a very natural and holistically oriented person, I want to believe that essential oils will cure my child's ADHD. So I will believe the promotional material from the essential oils company. But that's not putting your, your critical thinking hat on and really questioning what's best for your child. So we have to sometimes step out of our comfort zone of what we want to believe and really look for some evidence. And there, there are sources. Um, you know, there, are, there are some good resources. Um, I do a blog on that called Neuromyths. Um, there are other websites. There's, there's something people might not be familiar with called the What Works Clearinghouse that's actually from the U.S. Department of Education where they, they go through and, and aggregate and then analyze the, the, the data for different interventions. And, and not, not everything will be there. I, I've looked up things like the Barton Reading System there aren't any studies showing that it's effective, but the Wilson reading program, there are studies showing it's effective. That doesn't mean that Barton isn't effective. It just means that nobody's scientifically studied whether it is or not. But generally speaking, it would be better to go with ones where there's evidence. Wow. Well, I've never heard of What Works Clearinghouse, and I'm so curious now to to check that out later today. If you have any other sources or resources that you recommend parents check out, please um maybe send those to me afterwards and I'll make sure they're all included in the show notes page. Cause I know we've got a lot of brain science or kind of science nerds uh, out there. And I say nerds with all the love in my heart, uh, but who want to kind of dive deeper into this and seeking out the evidence. So that's really fantastic. It, it won't be everybody's cup of tea to, to dig deep into finding out the evidence because it's time consuming and it's, it's um, it can be a rabbit hole at times. If you, if you, so with some of these topics, you, you see so many arguments pro and so many con. Um, if, if that's your mindset to dig in, please go for it. And, and I'll put a lot of resources that I'll, I'll send to Debbie um, that can be really helpful in that. But absent that, if you're not the kind of parent that has the time or energy to, to really delve deeply into the research literature, what I suggest is that you try to find a, a team of people you can trust, a psychologist, a therapist, Somebody who you, you feel they know, and I can believe what they say. And, and that might take some doing, too. It might not be the person that evaluated your child. It might be somebody you find through one of Debbie's Tilt Together groups or through some other Facebook group. Um, somebody can say, you know, this is the expert who really figured it out for me, or this is the therapy. Take that. If it's an expert you believe, go with it. I mean, if, you, if you listen to a Ross Green podcast and you think, my gosh, he really gets my kid, go with a Ross Green approach. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, makes sense. So I'm going to ask you, I didn't prepare you for this question. So um, but I'm, you know, you've been through this as a parent and now in working with with so many other parents, any kind of hard won lessons that you would like to share? Anything that, that you experienced or, or went through that helped you? Yeah. And, I, and, and Debbie, you, you really nailed it with, with your approach. Find a community. Find a group of people or, or some, some group where you can share what you're going through because it's not gonna, you're not going to just suddenly have the right answer and a, and a plan and you're going to implement it and everything's going to always be perfect. There's something's going to crop up all the time. We're parenting differently wired children. So you need to find people you can share 
the experience with, and it may not be your spouse, and it probably won't be your parents. It may need to be other parents who are experiencing a similar situation with whom you can feel empathy and support. Um, So I think that's the number one thing. Can I put in a number two as well? Yes, please. (laughs) Number two is to see the light at the end of the tunnel. It all seems so depressing and, and devastating at first when you think my child has a disability What's their future going to be like? You know, will they ever be be happy and um, you know productive members of society? Sorry, I've got my office phone ringing. I forgot to turn it off. That's no, okay. Um, and and I really feel that even when things are pretty gloomy, if if you can just try to see some successful people who have similar issues, and even maybe get your child to be mentored by one of them or read a book about a biography by an inspiring person like Temple Grandin or, or um, any of the others who are outspoken about their disabilities and realize this is this, you're in the trenches now, but it's not always going to be so bad. Well, I think that's a, the perfect note to end this conversation on. I think it's important for us to remember, you know, when I talk to groups of parents, there are often many who are really in the thick of it. And I can see the pain and or fear or just the hard place they're in in their eyes. And and that's something I try to remind them as well is, it's not always going to feel this hard. And it is inspiring to kind of look uh, at the people who are so successful and whose whose differences are actually what make them so successful and have enabled them to contribute so much. Yeah. Well, Devin, thank you so much. This has been just very helpful. I think this is going to be one of those episodes that people are really going to embrace because it it kind of helps you feel like, okay, <laughs> now I've got this information and, and now I know what to expect and I have some really good guidelines for moving through this. So thank you so much for sharing all this with us today and for all the resources. Well, thank you. It's been a great pleasure. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, including a link to Dr. Devon's website, her viral now this video, and all the resources we discussed today, visit tiltparenting.com slash session 161. Don't forget to leave a rating or a review for Tilt Parenting on iTunes if you haven't done so already. Those ratings and reviews help keep this podcast visible in an ever-growing sea of podcasts. I just read yesterday that there are more than 70,000 podcasts currently on production. So those reviews and ratings make a big difference. Lastly, for the price of a coffee once a month at Starbucks, you can support the production of this show. It's easy, it's pain-free, and I would be so grateful for the help. To learn more, go to patreon.com slash tiltparenting. And that's all for this week. Thank you again for listening. And for more information on Tilt Parenting, visit www.tiltparenting.com. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. 
but I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free.